Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be hanging 10 with the Beach Boys. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. And welcome back for another excellent edition of the Music History Project. This week, we are going to be talking about the Beach Boys. What a perfect summer podcast theme, right? Today, we're going to be listening to some very important people that were involved in the Beach Boys career, including uh, Bruce Johnson, Fred Vail, Paul Tanner, and Jim Horn. Yes, I too am really excited about this particular episode. Um, Hanging out with the Beach Boys, at least hearing their stories from various angles, is always a well exciting uh, adventure for all of us. So uh, hopefully we'll have a good time this afternoon. Thanks all for joining us. Uh, One of the things that I thought would be uh, a nice little tease for you is I remember when I first got involved with the NAM community in the early 2000s, there were a lot of uh, synthesizer experts and let's call them lovingly geeks. Uh, Couldn't possibly imagine that any of the Beach Boys actually used a theremin on good vibrations. So they were discussing what that instrument was and how it couldn't possibly be a theremin. Well, today that question will be answered throughout uh, the podcast. So a little teaser for all you nerds out there who want to figure out, really, what did those guys play on Good Vibrations? So let's start this off by hearing from an actual Beach Boy. First up, we're going to hear from Bruce Johnson. He's going to be talking about meeting Brian Wilson, the Rip Chords, California Girls, and playing pet sounds for John and Paul. I was going to ask you about meeting Brian Wilson. How did that come about? Well, you know, it's a small town back in those days. And I was in high school with Jan and Dean, and, and Terry and I, we just had to walk across the street to meet Brian and Mike and Dennis and Carl and Al. It was cool. It was cool. I remember before I joined the band, by, quite by accident, I remember going over with Terry and watching. Uh, usually they would take a couple telephones, one from Mike's bass and then the rest of the band, and Brian would adjust his, how he, his stance based on who was around the mic because Al was shorter. Brian was really tall and Al was a lot shorter, so Alan would stand on a little riser and, my, and Brian would still have to, to spread his legs wide to have his voice even. But, I, but here Terry and I walked in just as they were singing uh, Windy. You know, it was just great. I thought, listen to that. Here's a great track. We're over at Western. You know, Chuck Britz is the engineer who engineered my first demo in like 1957. It's so great to hear it. And I had already had a really big hit as a producer. Terry and I produced a band called The Rip Chords, and we were so arrogant little guys at 21 years old. We were just the worst. I, I hope my kids never watch this. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we were trying to make them the Beach Boys. And so uh, we had uh, 
uh, a song uh, called Hey Little Cobra that we didn't write. And we were told, you're spending too much money on their album, the Ripcords, and they had already had Here I Stand and Gone, and they're doing really okay. And so they said, you have to finish it by midnight or scrap it. So we kind of sent the Ripcord, the two, there's only two guys in the Ripcords, to sent them home. And this is before Columbia Records had Cell Sync. So we had three tracks. So we recorded Hey Little Cobra and 10 overdubs of three track. <laughs> you know, again, not much to sell at an AM convention back in those days uh, in terms of uh, the technology we expect to see down there. It's pretty clever, though. That's <laughs> all, well, all we could do. Of course, then uh, we opened the door and we found an eight track that they had built because they wanted separation for Duke Ellington. You know, what are you going to do with it? Oh, you don't want to see this. We're going to dismantle. It's not working. Anyway, we made him work. We made it, made him, uh, get it all together. And eventually, when I joined the band, I had Brian come over, and uh, we sang "California Girls" on that eight track. You know, so we had more tracks to work with. That's you, crazy. Studio was state of the art. The limiters, uh, the pull text, all the stuff was there. And now, uh, now you can just a guitar player. Uh, like our guy Scott Totten, who's the uh, musical musical director of the Beach Boys, he's awesome player, awesome player, you know. And and Jeff Foskett's back in the band, and all these guys, they're just stepping something, and it sounds better than the whole studio at <laughs> Columbia Records Studio A. They just have a little thing, click, there it is. You know, probably they all became aware of it by going to Nam, you know, and hearing all these magic gadgets. The first song I recorded with the Beach Boys was California Girls, and I was called by Mike, and uh, you know, a few weeks earlier, said, "Brian, uh, as you know, doesn't go on the road anymore, and Glenn Campbell's starting to work in his career. Who do you know?" I called ten people. I still at Columbia Records, and then I said, "Well, look, I can get down to New Orleans this weekend. It was April 9th, 1965, and it just started there. Then I came home, and Carl said, "You've got to come back out." One thing led to another, and Brian said, you know, we're making this new album. Uh, I'd love to hear, see what your timber uh, would sound against the rest of the band. So I had like a sub lead, in the, an answer lead in California Girls, you know, trial uh, by fire, of course. Did you play pet sounds for John and Paul? You know, how the, what's the old saying, don't shoot the messenger? Well, this time, messenger... Uh, was applauded and praised for showing up with two copies of Pet Sounds. You know, <clears throat> I may have played it for them for the first time, or Lou Adler might have played it for them, because I know he played it for them too, and they were in the middle of Revolver, and uh, you'll hear a lot of Beach Boy-isms on here, there, and everywhere, you know, from Beach Boy, you know, Quick History and, and Pet Sounds, and, and uh, John and Paul really love the album. They made me play it for him twice. <laughs> but all I did was sing on it. <clears throat> you know, it's, 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 all, it's, it's all about Brian's creation, you know, as the producer and the writing the melodies and, and arranging it. I mean, that's his baby. I was just lucky enough to be on it. That's the third album I made in 12 months. Think about that. Okay, guys, you're going to go on tour. You're going to make three albums. Okay. I mean, nobody does that. So we made uh, Summer Day, Summer Nights with California Girls on it. 
And uh, Brian, in the middle of it, Al Jardine convinced him to make Sloop John B and worked on the arrangement with him. And, and Brian brought that in and over the summer, but it kind of laid limbo for a while. Then Capitol kind of wanted another album quickly, so the accidental unplugged album, the Beach Boys Party album, it has Barbara Ann on it. And then, uh, and, and Brian's also working on the Pet Sounds album. So within 12 months, I sang on three Beach Boys album, went on albums and went on tour. Happily at 21, 22 years old, I thought, well, oh, that's great, that's what you do. Nobody would do that now. They'd have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Certainly can't keep that pace up, I guess, but. I know, you know, we, we only did 172 concerts last year. <laughs> Is that it? 172, <laughs> what's last year? In 2016, or 15, 2015, you know, but, but honestly, in all fairness to the pace, you, you couldn't do that and record. But you could record, you could do it. You know, we'd come home and we'd be just trashed and Brian would have us in the studio the next afternoon and we'd be yawning, but the stuff would be so brilliant. And we really were, at the time, he was shining. Well, you had mentioned that you had only sang on some of those early records. How did it progress that you did more? I think Brian did less. And you had product requirements with the label. And you just can't, the label didn't get it. You just aren't going to be in the Olympics every year for the next 75 years. It doesn't work like that. You just have to get a time period. It all just comes out. You know, So we kind of did more all of us, not just me. I mean, we all kind of produces the beach, but you know, we were never Brian. But there are some loved albums like the uh, Sunflower album and Surf's Up that we really had all hands on from the band, including Brian. Okay, that was Bruce Johnston. What a fantastic opportunity we had back in uh, 2016 to interview one of the Beach Boys and feature him today on the uh, the podcast that you're listening to for the Music History Project. Just a quick little shout out to the great songwriter uh, Barry Vazan. I always say that correctly, don't I? Hmm, wink, wink. Uh, Barry's such a great guy. He uh, invited us to his home for an interview. Uh, he's a gentleman who wrote the theme song for the TV show SWAT, if you remember that. It's back on television, and I keep seeing Barry's name. Hopefully, he's still getting some royalties. Um, a sweet guy, but he couldn't figure out how we would go all the way to his house just for an interview with him. So he said, why don't I invite one of my friends to come over, and you can interview him at the same time. And I said, who's that? And he said, Bruce. I said, yeah, okay, we're coming. So uh, fantastic. And Bruce, what a great guy. He shows up with two shirts. I'm not sure what I look better in. So I just brought two shirts and I'll change it. Whatever you think will work best. Nice guy with a great story, and I hope you enjoyed the, that little brief uh, moment from his interview. Um, we're going to be hearing from a couple of other folks throughout this uh, podcast uh, about the Beach Boys. Uh, shifting right now to one of the very first promoters of the band, if not one of their first uh, managers besides their dad, um, that's Fred Vale, who... Um, was turned on to us thanks to the kind folks at Artisan Guitars in Franklin, Tennessee. Fred um, is sort of an expert on the recording studios in Nashville. He, having his own for many years, uh, gives tours now of some of the historic uh, 
spots there in Nashville, including RCA Studio B, which I don't know how he did it, but he arranged our interview to take place right there in the recording studio. Now, for those of you who know, I am already a bit of a music geek. I was totally geeking out on this. This was so fantastic. Our poor camera person had to take a bunch of pictures of me standing in various spots, such as, hey, this is where Jim Reeves stood. Oh, yeah, this is where Elvis played the piano. And over here... It was a little pathetic, but we had a fantastic time. And I think Fred totally got the uh, the vibe from me that uh, it was well worth any effort that he had to get uh, hoops he had to jump through to, uh, to uh, accommodate us and his interview, which, by the way, is fantastic. For those of you who uh, feel that this is just a bit of a tease of the bigger story of Fred, because we don't really talk too much about his own career in this podcast, um, please check out his full interview on the NAM website. But in the meanwhile, let's get back to the podcast. And here's Fred Vale talking about meeting the Beach Boys and booking them. In 1958, I entered El Camino High School. It was in the North area near Country Club Center. It was about a mile and a half from Country Club, and a, which was a mall, a strip mall. And uh, right across the street uh, was Jack Hyde's. Um, it was a musical instrument store and sheet music. I mean, this is where you'd get your your school musical instruments, your horns, and this is where you'd get your guitar and your guitar strings. This is where you'd get a piano or an organ. It was Jack's House of Music. And of course, back in those days, um, we didn't have the conveniences of a ticket master, right? So in, let me back up. In, in 58, I entered El Camino High School, which was about a mile or a mile and a half from from Jack. El Camino High School was on El Camino Avenue. Jack's was right around the corner on a side street going into El Camino Avenue. And um, like I said, across from Country Club Plaza. And I entered El Camino and we had student body officers back in those days. And the student body officers were the student body president and the girls vice president and the boys vice president and the secretary and the treasurer. And then they had three commissioners. They had the commissioner of public relations that did all the stories and wrote up articles for the newspapers. And they had the Commissioner of Internal Affairs, which was kind of a court. It, it, you know, it made sure that everybody lived up to the Constitution and it's, the kids were honest and all that sort of thing. And then they had Commissioner of Entertainment. And the Commissioner of Entertainment was in charge of the rallies and the assemblies. And I had tried my sophomore year, I tried to, for Commissioner of PR, Public Relations, and it didn't happen. I, I wasn't elected. And then in my senior year, the beginning of my senior year, I tried for commission of entertainment and I wasn't elected. Now, a girl, Georgianne Coffey, won. And it was the end of my senior year. It was going into spring of 1962. I would graduate in June. This was now right around January, maybe December, January. And so I ran against Georgianne, who was up for re-election along with four other girls. So there were six of us running, I was the only guy. And the twist was the big music thing. And, you know, and my slogan was, add a new twist, add a new twist to 1962 and elect Fred Vail Commission of Entertainment. And, and then I needed a, a campaign platform. So I said, and if you elect me Commissioner of Entertainment, I will bring big name artists to the school assemblies. And up until that time, it was all high school talent. It was the 
Kingston Trio wannabes and the dance bands and the jugglers and the wannabe comedians and that was the entertainment you know were, were the students and I said elect me your commissioner and I'll, I'll bring recording artists to the school and I had a reputation at that point I was working in radio uh, in fact, I was I was on the air during summers. I, I was a program director and midday guy at KCNW FM, a country station. I was interviewing artists for the El Caminion, which was the school newspaper. So I was meeting people like Connie Francis and the Everly Brothers and Lloyd Price and Ray Charles and Pat Boone. I mean, I I was very very lucky that I I got to meet my heroes. I mean, th these were people that I idolized on the radio and tuned in on American Bandstand during the week and watched the kids dancing and rating their records on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. And so, you know, the kids kind of thought, well, you know, if anybody can pull that off, maybe Fred can. So there was a runoff. Uh, Georgianne, the incumbent, got beat, and the other three girls got beat, and there was a girl, Tylee Jones, and she and I were up for the office. I mean, it was the final... Uh, you know, it was my last hurrah. Either I made it or I would graduate that June and there wouldn't be a next year to try to run again. And fortunately for me, I, I won the runoff and I was the new commissioner of entertainment. So to make good on my promise, I contacted two of the big hotels, uh, the Sacramento Inn and the El Dorado Hotel. And they had ballrooms and they had shows and they would bring in artists from time to time. And the first act that I brought in was around March, and it was the Diamonds uh, vocal group. And, and they were a big group. I mean, they had a, a number one record, Little Darling. They had a dance craze called The Stroll, which was a big record in the still of the night. I mean, they were a big group, and I brought them in. And then, long about uh, May, uh, a guy named Pete Marino, who was a promoter in San Francisco, was bringing in what we call a package show into the Sacramento County Fair. Let me pull this out. And this is what he was bringing in. Wow. So I got a hold of Pete and I said, I'm Fred Vale, I commissioner of entertainment at a school in Sacramento, El Camino High School. And I think if you would come out and give us, you know, a sample, let them do a song, that a lot of our kids might be willing to go to that show this weekend at the County, Sacramento County Fair. And sure enough, he did. And uh, I met him at the Sacramento Inn they were a little bit late. One of the artists uh, that was on the bill had been holed up uh, at his, he had lost, had missed a plane flight from LA. He was taking finals at UCLA. He was a medical student. And so he, he was late. So by the time we got to the school, the school was almost out. And the, the boys gym where we held these things was flooded with kids and the fire marshal had closed the doors and the vice principal was livid at me because we were so late. But it was nothing I could do about it, so we put the show on, and as you can see, Johnny Crawford from The Rifleman was on the show. He was kind of like a Justin Bieber of his day, a big teen idol. Um, Bobby Freeman, who wrote the song and performed the song, Do You Want to Dance, uh, was on the show. He was from San Francisco. Uh, the Mamas and the Papas and the Beach Boys and the Ramones would record that song down the road. He was on the show. Uh, Jan and Dean. Jan was the one who had missed his flight. Jan Barry of Jan and Dean. He was on the show. Johnny Morissette, Bertha Tillman, um, Skip Soder was doing the, the twist, one of the twist acts. And of course, the headliners were Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. So I brought this show to my high school, 
for a free performance uh, in uh, 1962. So when I did that, I mean, I had. I was the big man on campus. All of a sudden, I was the hero, and it was a great time. So that uh, June, my class, the class of 62 graduates, and the students asked me to book their all-night grad party, uh, which was the big blowout at the end of the year. You'd graduate on the football field in the afternoon, early evening, then you'd go home, you'd get into your street clothes, and you'd go down to a country club or a a bowling alley and you do this all-night grad party that started around eight or nine o'clock and went till six in the morning and it would have a dance band it would have food it would have games it would have movies etc so i booked bobby freeman and jerry wallace into my grad party and it was a big success and then the following year i was a student at sacramento state college which is now california state university sacramento and i was in broadcasting and journalism and the senior class of 63 who had been juniors came to me and said hey we we'd want you to book our grad party and i i asked them um, you know what their budget was and they said 750 dollars and i said great i can get a a band i can get a duo i might even be able to get a single or a whatever and they said well no fred we've only got 750 dollars for our total budget and i said you mean entertainment <laughs> hall security food it ain't gonna happen, you can't do it. And it's now it's right around March, might have been early April. So they've already done a lot of the typical fundraising events, the candy bar sales and the car washes and the newspaper drives and all this sort of stuff. So I, I came up with the idea, why don't we take the 750 and we'll buy a, a, a band, we'll buy an act and we'll put on our own concert. And the kids thought it was great, the principal uh, Dr. Abbott and the class advisors thought they'd lost a screw. They said, you're not going to give 750 to Fred. He was, you know, he's a kid. He just graduated last year. And they said, well, we raised it. We believe in Fred. We know he can pull it off. So they, they gave me the go-ahead. And, of course, who are you going to get? Well, the music had shifted from the twist, which had been popular the previous year or two, to surf music. So I said, let's get a surf band. And every label, it seemed, had a surf band. The Ventures were a surf band, the Challengers, the Lively Ones, Dickdale and the Deltones. Uh, there were a lot of surfing bands, but there was this one particular band, uh, three brothers, a cousin, and a friend, uh, that wrote their own songs and did these great harmonies, and they were called the Beach Boys. So I proceeded to look for the Beach Boys, and uh, they were a best-kept secret at that point. Now, they were... Uh, the Beach Boys of that era, 1963, are not the iconic Beach Boys of 2019. Uh, they, were, uh, they were mostly working dances, uh, not too many concerts. They were opening for Jan and Dean. They were opening for Dick Dale. They were opening for Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, they weren't established stars, you know, like they would become in the next couple of years. So I, um, I struck out trying to find them. I, I, I found a broker that offered them to me for, oh, what did he offer them to me for? F 500 bucks, I think. And he didn't even represent them. He, he would broker, he would, he would buy a bunch of dates and then he would farm those dates out to people like me who would take all the risk and put the shows on and he'd make money just by providing the entertainment. So I finally, I called Capital Records, their label, and they said, well, I think they've just been signed to the William Morris Agency. So I called the William Morris Agency. 
And the woman answers the phone, you know, William Morris, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm Fred Vale. I'm calling from Sacramento and I'd like to book uh, the Beach Boys. And she said, the Beach Boys? I've never heard of the Beach Boys. And I said, well, their record label thinks that they've just been signed to your label. So if you would transfer me up to your variety department, I'll talk to someone up there. And they transferred me up to Variety and the woman secretary come on and, and she said, yeah, uh, we just signed the Beach Boys and their, uh, their agent, Marshall Burrell, uh, will be glad to talk with you. So I got on the phone with Marshall, who was Melton Burrell's nephew. Melton Burrell was Mr. Television. He was a huge star in movies and TV. And Marshall was his nephew. So I saw the first evidence of nepotism in Hollywood. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But Marshall was a nice guy. And I said, I'd like to book the Beach Boys in May for a concert. And I gave him a couple of dates, Friday or Saturday, the 24th or 25th of, of May. And he said, well, I'll get back to you. Um, and I said, well, how much will it be? And he said, well, it'll be, uh, it'll be $400. And I said, great, I've already made a hundred bucks, you know. So he, um, he called me back or I called him back the next day and he, he kind of said, I have good news and bad news. He didn't exactly phrase it that way. He said, uh, you know, we put the date in the books, we got it on hold, but we've talked to Murray and they can't do it for 400 because Carl is in high school and he doesn't get out of high school till three o'clock. If you were in San Bernardino or Santa Barbara or San Diego or Bakersfield and they could drive there in a you know, in a couple hours, you know, that would be great, but they're not going to be able to do that because you're, you know, 500 miles away and they're going to have to take a plane. So we said, well, I'll give them to you for 400 uh, and three round, uh, six round trip airline tickets, one for each of the Beach Boys, one for their dad, Murray, or I'll give them to you for a flat 750. So I, I settled on the $750 and uh, we uh, went ahead and started setting up the show and we sold the tickets at the high school during before school and during lunch break and after school. But since there was no Ticketmaster, I put them on sale in record shops, record stores, and at Jack's House of Music. So here's a poster from that show on May 24th, 1963. Uh, El Camino alumni class of 63 present the Beach Boys, the number one surfing group in the country. And Sacramento Memorial Auditorium, Friday, May 24th, 1963, 8 o'clock, $1.75 advance. And uh, there was just advance, all seats, $1.75. And then, of course, down here, here you are, Jack Hyde, the tickets on sale at Jack's House of Music and the Civic Theater box office. And it's got their addresses. And um, we, we put the tickets on sale and the, 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 uh, the day of the... Uh, oh, and I went to the radio stations where I'd, I had either worked as a DJ or a weekend relief DJ, or I'd worked as a gopher at four or five Sacramento stations, KRAK, uh, KXOA, KCNW, FM, which was the KXOA FM, um, KCRA, uh, KROY. So, you know, I, I'd been around, so I went to all of them and said, listen, I'm not putting this show on. The El Camino Senior Class is. They're a nonprofit. How about some free spots, some PSAs, public service announcements? So we got plenty of free radio spots. And it was time to, you know, to, to put the show on. So the afternoon of the show, I borrowed my folks' uh, 1954 Chevy, uh, be kind of similar to a Suburban. We went, uh, I went down and picked up all the advance sales and all the, the uh, unsold tickets. We call them Deadwood back in those days and went out to the old Sacramento airport, loaded all the, the Beach Boys arrive at the airport with Murray. There's five Beach Boys, Murray. 
This is the old airport. This is the old days where they would roll the steps up to the airplane and you'd come out the door and down the steps and cross the tarmac and pick up your luggage and put it in your car or in a cab and, and head out. No roadies, no 18-wheelers. This is early Beach Boys. So we, we got all the gear into my folks' 54 wagon and uh, went down to the auditorium. On the way down, Carl was riding with me. He was the uh, youngest Beach Boy, the youngest brother. Uh, said, you know, um, who are we opening for tonight? And I said, Carl, you guys are the headliners. There's no opening act. You're going to do two short sets. He said, well, we haven't done that. He, he said, uh, I hope the promoter doesn't, you know, lose his shirt or something to that effect. And I said, Carl, I'm the, I'm the promoter. I'm Fred Vale. I'm the guy that paid $750 for you. And he, he looked at me and said, but you're just a kid like us. You know, I said, yeah, I know, but I'm the guy that's putting on the show. So we did the show. And it was mostly, I mean, the only hits they had out was uh, Surfin', which had been their first single on Candex, which the label folded shortly after the record. They went to Capitol, did Surfin' Safari. Uh, they had just put out Surfin' USA and shut down the B-side, which would become hit. And that was the show, mainly cover songs. So they would do uh, Del Shannon, Runaway. They would do Four Freshmen, Graduation Day. They would do Dion DiMucci, The Wanderer. Uh, they would do uh, Miserloo, Dick Dale song. They would do Johnny Be Good, Chuck Berry song. I mean, this is what their shows were. It was mostly cover songs, uh, you know, with a few of their hits thrown in. But as luck would have it again, much like in the case of Johnny Cash, um, the week before, the Friday before my show, um, Surfing USA had peaked at number one at both of the Sacramento radio stations. So I knew going in that we had broken our nut, we had met, met the overhead with the advance sale, and then it was just a question of tickets at the door. And it was cheap. Putting on a show back then, uh, there's a guy writing a book on rock and roll concerts, uh, a guy named Mark Myers, and I just spoke to him, did an interview with him on the phone uh, about a month ago. And I was telling him the cost of putting on a concert in 1963. We did the whole thing for 1,500 bucks, give or take. I mean, the Beach Boys were 750. The auditorium, which held 5,300 people, was $150 guarantee plus 5% of the gross over 1,500. So they would give you $1,500 off the gross to make your overhead, and then they would take 5% in addition to the 100 and a half. Uh, two off-duty policemen, Sacramento policemen. Uh, Tiny and, and Lynch Chatoyan, uh, 25 bucks a piece. Ticket takers, 20, 25 bucks a piece. Ticket seller, box office manager, 50 bucks. Uh, tickets uh, and posters. I think combined, this poster and the tickets was about 60, 65 dollars. Uh, Stagehands, 100 and a half, give or take. Um, the sound system was 100 and a half, and that included the operator. So you could put the whole show on for around 1500 bucks, and uh, so the, I brought the Beach Boys on, they did the first set, the curtain goes down, they're all excited, and they all of a sudden they realize they have to do another set, and, and Mike is saying, Fred, we just shot our wad, we did all of our songs. I said, well, do you know, do them again. Carl, you do longer guitar solos. Denny, do you longer drum solos. If you got any new songs, try them out. Nobody's heard them, they won't know. You know, you guys own this audience. You guys are going over great. So they, they did another set, 35, 40 minutes. We got done probably at 9.30, give or take. I mean, um, we went to the 
Mansion Inn where they had a couple of rooms. They used to double and triple up in those days. Went to the Mansion Inn, which was just a few blocks away, literally. Uh, went into the dining room, which was still open, sat down at a table. It's, uh, it's the five Beach Boys, Murray the manager, uh, myself, my friend Ron, my friend Mike. And we, um, we were having burgers and Cokes and fries and milkshakes like kids have. And Carl asked, hey, Pop, how'd we do tonight? And he pulled the contract out and he said, well, uh, Mr. Vale paid us $750, but we have six round-trip airline tickets and we got a couple of hotel rooms and we got the meal tonight and maybe put aside a few bucks for breakfast in the morning. He said, I think when it's all said and done, uh, you guys are going to make 50 to 55 bucks a piece. Now, this is each Beach Boy. And, and they were ecstatic because in 1963, you could go on a date with your girlfriend, put a buck or two in your car for gas, go to a movie, the two of you, go to dinner at Mel's Drive-In or Harvey's or McDonald's, burgers, fries, Cokes, get a hot dog or get a popcorn or get a Coke at the movie theater. And this is for two people. You could do it for 10 bucks, maybe 11. So to, if you're a kid like the Beach Boys were, you know, Carl was 16, Denny was 18, um, Mike was 23, Al was 21, Brian was 21, Dave Marks, who was sitting in for Brian on that particular night, was 14, and uh, he would work on the first three albums, and then he would leave the group, and Al would come back on full-time, and, and then the, the, the Beach Boys, historically, are the three Wilson brothers, Mike Love and Al Jardine. Uh, Dave Marks is kind of the forgotten uh, Beach Boy because he was in it shortly, but he was taken out of the group. Uh, it was a lot of different stories how that happened, but anyway, he was out of the group. So back in those days, I mean, it's totally different than it is today. I mean, uh, you know, now you would spend on a nice date and a show and popcorn and you'd spend 150 bucks probably, you know, for an evening out at a restaurant and movie tickets and popcorn and, and Coke at the movies. Back then, it was, like I said, it was $10, $11. So they were, uh, they'd made 50 to 55 bucks a piece. And they were teenagers for the most part. And that was good money, right? So then Carl says, well, Fred, how'd you do? And I said, well, the senior class made $4,000. And my take was... Uh, 15% uh, of the net, so I made $600. So I made uh, over 10 times what each of the Beach Boys made. That first concert. Never happened again, but that got their attention. And Murray, all of a sudden, he says, well, man, that's amazing. What did you do? And I said, well, I said, first off, William Morris, the agency, doesn't know what they have. You're their best kept secret. I, I told him how hard it was to find them, to get a hold of them. Back in those days, the two major agencies, there were three, ABC Associated Booking out of Chicago, which did primarily bands, and uh, General Artist Corporation, and William Morris. And those were the agencies. And often they would sign an act just to keep them off the market, just to tie them up in, in case they happened, in case they broke, they would have them under contract. So I said, William Morris doesn't even know what you got. I said, there's going to be a lot of promoters like me that are going to make a lot of money, you know, because they don't know, you know, they didn't do any market research. They didn't ask me about the hall or what the gross potential was. They didn't ask me any of the particulars. They were just booking another date and it happened to be Sacramento, it happened to be for Red Vale. So I, uh, I told them, you guys ought to start doing your own shows. And Murray said, well, what do you mean do our own shows? I said, well, 
go out and find small markets, secondary markets. Don't worry about New York. Don't worry about Chicago. Don't worry about Miami. Don't worry about LA. Go into the secondary markets where the kids are starved for entertainment. Go to Sacramento, go to Fresno, go to Reno, Nevada, go to Salt Lake City, go to Las Vegas, Nevada, go to Spokane, Washington. Do the secondary markets where the kids are starving for live entertainment and print your own tickets and get a radio station to sponsor you or I'll sponsor you, whatever. And that'll be, you know, what that'll be a great formula for making a lot more money than William Morris is making now because they're making 400 to 500 bucks a night at this period. And all of a sudden, I'm showing them a way that they can make two, three, four, five, six thousand dollars, which is a huge difference. And Murray said, well, listen, I, I'm kind of like part-time manager. I said, boys aren't making enough money for me to give up my able machinery company. I sell drill presses and lathes uh, to businesses. And he said, that's my main business. My wife, Audrey, is a stay-at-home mom. Uh, we live in Hawthorne, but my sons are still living at home. Brian, Dennis, and Carl are still living at home. And he said, I just don't have the time. And I said, well, I'll do it. And he, like, he looked at me like I got a screw loose. And I said, uh, he said, you know, would you? And I said, yeah. He said, well, we're going to be at uh, the Russian River, Rio Nido Lodge, next Saturday night, June 1st. Why don't you drive out and we'll get together and we'll talk some more. So he, you know, I, I met him there, and then that's that picture, which... Um, in the frame? Yeah, that's the picture in the frame. That's that night of June 1st, 1963. Here is early Beach Boys. This is that show on June 1st uh, in Rio Nido at the Lodge. That's Mike. That's myself, Fred. Uh, that's Dave Marks. That's my friend, Ron Beatty. Dennis the drummer, Dennis Wilson. Carl Wilson, Al Jardine, uh, and that's uh, June 1st, 1963. Photo taken by my friend Mike Davidson. Um, and then uh, this show uh, picture we'll, we'll talk about in, in, uh, in a few moments. So that was, you know, that, again, that's early Beach Boys. Um, we, uh, we made a date for me to come down to L.A. and uh, talk and I went to their home in Hawthorne, and the Beach Boys, Dennis, Carl, and Brian are still living at home. And I remember getting, uh, getting out there and walking into the kitchen, the kitchen dinette, you know, typical small middle-class home subdivision. And uh, Murray, is, he always smoked a pipe, and he was smoking his pipe, and Audrey was over at the, the sink doing dishes. Uh, for the you know after the evening meal, and uh, Carl and Denny were out somewhere, and they came they came by. Brian was in his bedroom, so I remember Murray shouting out, "Hey, Brian, Mr. Vale is here!" So Brian comes out and his uniform. He always wore uh, tan dungarees and a, a white T-shirt. You know that was his typical dress, and when they were on sta stage, sometimes they wore. Pendleton shirts, which is what you saw in, in that photograph. Um, and later they would become famous for their white pants and striped shirts. That was a little bit down the road, not far. And so we, uh, we all talked and I went to their session, uh, a recording session at Western United the next day. I think they were recording, um, I think they were recording Be True to Your School, I can't remember. But it was one of their earlier hits from 1963. And um, 
you know, it just it turned into a friendship. So you are listening to the Music History Project episode all about the Beach Boys. Uh, we just got finished listening to Fred Vale talking about meeting the Beach Boys and starting to book them. Very, very cool stories. And he's showing off a lot of posters and other memorabilia from back in the day. And if you'd like to see uh, any of that stuff, we have the full video interview posted on the NAM website. So you can head over to namnamm.org slash library. Full collection is there. Just search for Fred Vale, and you'll find the full video interview that accompanies this audio. So let's jump right back into it. We're going to be hearing from Fred Vale some more. He's going to be talking about some more dates um, that he booked for the Beach Boys and some of their interesting tour stories. As they got bigger, I continued to do their shows, uh, mostly in secondary markets, and they were going over great. But you, you've got to remember that the Beach Boys in 1963 had, had still were to have their first number one record, uh, I Get Around, which would happen in the spring of 64, shortly after the Beatles invaded the U.S. and did the Ed Sullivan Show in, in February of 64. So the Beach Boys are, are doing well. Uh, they're having hit records, and Surfer Girl's a hit, and uh, Shutdown's a hit, and Little Deuce Coop's a hit, and you know, they're doing some great records. Um, long about October, I'm, I'm setting up a show, and we decided that we would do a show in Marysville, Yuba City, at the Marysville Auditorium. And the reason we wanted to do it, number one, it was close enough to Sacramento to where we could, we could draw their Sacramento fans. We had already played Sacramento twice prior. We played Sacramento in the Sacramento area four times within eight months, believe it or not, four times, uh, including the show in Marysville. In Sacramento at the auditorium, they didn't allow dancing. So whenever the kids got up and started to dance, the police would turn the house lights up and would make the kids sit down so the show could go on. In Marysville, it was an auditorium much like a large version of the new Coconut Grove Ballroom. It was no fixed seating, it was a wood floor, and they could dance. So I decided we would do a dance and show in Marysville, and the date was picked as November 22nd, 1963. Uh, that morning I got up, it was going to be Thanksgiving, kids were getting ready for the, you know, vacation, parents were doing their, you know, their uh, Thanksgiving shopping, buying the turkey and all that sort of stuff. And I went down to KXOA to check on the commercials, make sure they update them from this Friday, November 22nd, to tonight, November 22nd. So I'm monitoring the station. A friend of mine, Johnny Gunn, is is uh, running down to Coast Radio, which was one of my ticket locations, to bring some copy down to Ricky Hernandez, the manager, to approve the copy so they can make new commercials for Coast Radio. And I decided to ride with them. And on the way down, it comes over the radio that there's been a shooting at the motorcade in Dallas, Texas. And the early reports are that the president, John F. Kennedy, has been hit. And they're on their way to the Parkland Hospital in Dallas. And, of course, everything it was a you know it was a tragedy i mean we've had two other assassinations garfield and lincoln but i mean this was you know this was a huge tragedy and it was it stunned the nation it stunned the world 
and we went back to the KXOA radio. And by the time we got back, they had announced that the president had passed away. They'd, he'd been the, the target of an assassin. The assassination was successful. He was dead. Uh, America's youngest president at that time. And, and all the secretaries were in tears. Uh, everybody was gathered around uh, United Press or Associated Press teletypes to see the latest news. Uh, they were updating it on the air, and I went into the main control room, and you know, they're all, I mean, that's the story. That's one of the biggest stories of the 20th century. In fact, I think it might be the biggest story of the 20th century, according to journalists and history. It was a huge story. Um, the moonwalk would have to be close to equal that, but I mean, it was a huge story. So I'm thinking, well, what about the show? I mean, we've got a, a dance and show to put on tonight. And so I called Murray up. Now it's still 10 or 11 in the morning, it's early. And uh, you know, I said, uh, you guys are coming up, aren't you? And, they, and Murray said, well, Fred, you know, how can we? You know, the president has just been assassinated. And I, I, I said, well, yeah, I know, but I said, you know, school's probably out. The kids have been looking forward to this for weeks. Um, I said, before you cancel, why don't I make a few calls? Let me call the city hall. Let me call the uh, auditorium. Uh, let me call the radio station in Yuba City. Let me call the record store where our tickets are for sale up there. And um, let's let them make the decision. So I called them all up and they all said, uh, that's fine. I mean, the auditorium manager said, that's okay. Uh, the radio station said, we've been flooded with calls. Is the concert gonna be a go? Uh, ticket sales had all picked up. The kids were let out of school. Every kid in America was let out of school that day from what I can see now in retrospect. So the kids didn't have anything to do and they were looking forward to seeing the Beach Boys. So I called Murray back and I said, Murray, you know, I think we should go on with the show. And he said, Fred, they just announced that for the first time since like World War One, that uh, Broadway, the Great White Way, New York, uh, had dimmed the lights. They were not gonna put on any performances tonight. And I said, well, this is not Broadway. This is Marysville, Yuba City, California. And the kids are looking forward to seeing their favorite band, the Beach Boys. And I said, I think we should do it. So he said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll meet you at the airport. And so I drove out with my trusty 54 wagon and picked them up and we all, uh, we got into the car and my friend Mike had a car and we drove, uh, we stopped at the El Dorado Hotel on the way up on the highway, it was in Sacramento and they were gonna stay overnight there. So they, you know, they got there, changed their clothes and then we drove up to uh, Marysville, Yuba City and there was a group called Freddie and the Statics who I'd hired to open for the Beach Boys. And so the Freddie and the Statics, uh, we helped them take their gear off the stage and we put our gear on the stage and uh, the curtain was drawn and I, I decided to go out and, and ask for a, a, a moment of silence on behalf of our fallen president. And so I went out and, and we had a moment of silence and then uh, it was time to bring the Beach Boys on and you know, go on with the show and the curtain opened and the Beach Boys played. Broke the hall record, no problems, uh, you know, no disturbances, no riots, just kids having a great time on a, on a Friday night. And so that was the, uh, that was the other concert uh, right here. This is another historic poster. This is the Marysville Memorial Auditorium, November 22nd, uh, $1.50 advance, $2 at the door. 
um, again, Tower Books and uh, Music World at Yuba City and Valley Music in Marysville and Frederick Vale Productions presents uh, the Beach Boys and at that point they had 409 Little Deuce Coop shut down Surfer Girl in my room uh, Surfing USA Surfing Safari and Be True to Your School so that's November so um, that's the and it's the dancing show also featuring Freddie and the Statics so this is one of the most historic posters uh, I I have another I have two one is on loan to the country to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland Ohio and then and this is the other one. So this is a you know pretty a pretty famous poster. So the the show goes off without a hitch. They broke the hall record. Uh, we got in our cars. We went back to to the El Dorado Hotel. It's midnight, one o'clock in the morning. It's November, but it's still not that cold outside. And we went in. They were all doubling and tripling up. So I remember going into one of the rooms, one of the doubles, and there were two twin beds in the room and I remember the bright turquoise bedspreads. Turquoise was a huge color in the in the 50s early 60s. Turquoise was it was the color of my bedroom. It was a real popular color and the color uh, turquoise and white two-tone car was one of the most popular car colors was turquoise and white and so we're Murray and I are on one bed we had dumped out two shopping bags of money and we're busy counting dollar bills and a few fives and a bunch of quarters. And, um, and over in the corner on the other side of the other bed, Mike and Brian are working on this song that they had started that morning. And it's called The Warmth of the Sun. And it's one of their most famous ballads. It's a famous song. And I was there when they were rehearsing it and adding the final touches to the melody and the harmonies. And there on and, and on January first, uh, barely a month later, they're in um, Western United recording the song, and they did two songs that day. The other one was Fun Fun Fun, which became a number one record for them. So they recorded that one in Warmth of the Sun. So I was there when they were writing those songs, and I was there when they were recording those songs. So it was pretty pretty incredible. Um, we did that show, and then I had an idea, and, and this is the. Uh, the third show-and-tell poster I'm going to show you. Um, the Beach Boys were, were great on stage. Uh, they were known for their vocal harmonies. They were fantastic. They were young. They played their own instruments. They uh, wrote a lot. Brian and or Mike and or Al or the boys wrote most of their songs or a lot of their songs. And... Um, I had an idea, and I, I told Murray and Brian, I said, you know what we ought to do? And they said, what? And I said, we ought to record one of your concerts. Let's record a live album. And they looked at me and like, they said, well, Fred, the whole idea of seeing us live and experience us is to, to go to our concert. Who'd want to hear a recording of our concert, right? And I said, Murray, you're not thinking like a kid. You know, number one, the kids that go to your concert would love to have a souvenir. They'd love to buy a concert album so they can relive the concert. And I said, the kids that you, you haven't visited yet, this, this, the kids in the markets where you haven't played yet, and you've probably at that point haven't played but 5% of the markets in America at that point, you know. And I said, don't you think those kids would like to experience a, 
a Beach Boy concert. And don't you think if they buy the album that when you finally do play Savannah, Georgia, or you do play Jacksonville, Florida, or you do play, you know, another market, that they'll be the first in line to buy a ticket. And all of a sudden, Murray and Brian see the light. And they said, you know, I think you, I think you hit another home run. They said, uh, let's set up a, a live concert in Sacramento. We'll do it on December 21st. And just to tie into the Christmas holiday, the kids will be out of school. We'll do a live album. So on December 21st, 1963, we did this show. This is, again, Frederick Gale Productions, a gala Christmas concert. Uh, the Beach Boys, December, Saturday, December 21st, 8 o'clock, Memorial Auditorium. And again, uh, Tower Books is now there. That's part of Tower Records. Coast Radio, Civic Theater Box Office, Jack's House of Music, right down there in the right corner, and Southgate Records on the south side of Sacramento. MC'd by the KXOA Good Guys. And tickets are $2 advance and $2.25 at the door. We've gone up another quarter. This concert will be recorded for future release as a capital album. So this concert is taking place and December 21st, which happened to be Carl's 17th birthday. And uh, I picked up the advance sales and went down to the auditorium. And uh, a guy named Bill Early, a DJ on KXLA, was supposed to uh, get there and introduce the Beach Boys. Uh, by 10 or so after 8 o'clock, the kids were stomping their feet and getting restless. And the cops said, listen, you, we've got to get this show on the air. We're having, you know, the kids are excited and they want to see the, the band. So I said, Murray, we, we need to start the show. And, and he said, well, you know the drill. He said, go out there and bring them on. So I went out on the microphone and I said, and now from Hawthorne, California, to entertain you tonight with a gala Christmas concert and recording session, the fabulous Beach Boys. And they started the set and did the concert. And Brian thought that he might overdub an LA DJ, but none of them could capture the live feeling in the crowd crescendo building as I introduced them. And so he ended up editing out Christmas. So it says, and now from Hawthorne, California, entertaining you tonight with a gala concert and recording session, the fabulous Beach Boys. And I'm the voice on the record. The record went on to become their first number one album and their first gold album. And that's my, my place in history. It captures the Beach Boys in an era when they were all in good health. They were all excited and they were living for the moment. Uh, it was, you know, three years before the incredible pet sounds. It was three years before the incredible good vibrations. And, um, you know, 57 years later, Brian is still touring with Alan and Mike Love has the name The Beach Boys and he's touring with a, with a band and they're still selling concert tickets and they're still selling out and they're still, you know, uh, reliving the memories of that era. 
So uh, that was more of the awesome stories that Fred has about uh, working with the Beach Boys in the early days. And uh, his interview was such a delight to listen to. And um, he remembers so much, so many details. It's amazing. Uh, and just has all, like, like Mike mentioned earlier, all of the uh, posters and pictures. I mean, it's just a full storyline that you get from him. Uh, it was such a great thing to listen to. And I loved hearing all the little nuances of, uh, you know, him having to introduce the the show because the a person that was going to do that wasn't around, you know, just great stories to hear from him uh, and really paints a great picture of uh, the early years of the Beach Boys. Well said. Yeah. And the energy this guy has about his role with their career is just unbelievable. I mean, um, he's so proud that he played a role and is so proud of who they are now and what they've become. Uh, some of the things not covered in that interview, but uh, very near and dear to Fred's heart is uh, all the charitable work that the Beach Boys do, you know, doing whole concerts just to raise money for children's hospitals and things like that. Um, Just a a really important part of who Fred is that the Beach Boys continue to be who they are grounded and giving back to their communities. Uh, I think it's very, very important to all of them. So yeah, great, great, great stuff. Uh, switching gears just a little bit um, as we continue with the theme of the Beach Boys, um, we're going to hear from two studio musicians um, who have uh, played a small role in the uh, career of the Beach Boys. Both of them were on hand for the recording of Pet Sounds. And the first we're going to hear is from Paul Tanner. Uh, Paul Tanner was a trombone player for the Glenn Miller Orchestra way back in the swing era. In fact, just about every gig that Glenn Miller's uh, band did before he was drafted into the Army in World War II, Paul was there on the stand. Unbelievable. All the movies, almost every recording, he was playing trombone. Um, And a delightful guy I got to know very, very well. He lived here in Carlsbad, California. I interviewed him in 2001. And um, one of the questions I asked him was, okay, there's a rumor going around about you playing on Pet Sounds. So I'm going to have him talk a little bit about that, and it'll help answer a uh, a burning question in the minds of many uh, synth enthusiasts out there. And then we're going to segue right into another uh, classic um, studio musician, Jim Horn, who um, also played on Pet Sounds and gave a few thoughts about good vibrations as well. So here are Paul Tanner, followed by Jim Horn. Tell me about the theremin, your, your involvement with the theremin. I was doing a recording session on a movie for some, I don't know what the movie was, but uh, there, there was a fellow playing the theremin, and I, I think it was Samuel Hoffman, and uh, he's the same fellow that did uh, a couple of things before that, that uh, explored the instrument very well. But uh, he had a terrible time with it uh, because you, you control your, your, your volume with the left hand over a kind of a plate type situation and the right hand is going to an antenna to control the pitch. Now if anything happens, like if you decide this is middle C, then if anything happened around you, that's not going to be middle C. And it was terrible. The guy had a, a tough time out. So I thought, oh, it's got to be a better way to do that, you know. So I 
got together with a couple fellows and made a better way, where all we do is move a wire and put it in any place we want, you know. And then I started to do an awful lot of work on it. But I kept telling everybody, now wait, I'm a trombone player. This is what I do. <laughs> That's why we think it's ironic that we ask you more about the Thurman than the Glenn Miller band. So, yeah. um, because so many people are intrigued by it. So this Paul box, the Tanner box, um, basically just had this, this wire that slid so that you could control it. Yeah, I can show you a picture of it. Oh, okay. And I, I brought it with me. Oh, great. And you can... Uh, Fax it off or whatever, you, or um, Xerox it off, whatever you want, you know. And then, and then you worked, one of the gigs you had with that was uh, with the Beach Boys. Yeah, uh, Good Vibrations, that's right. Uh, strange group to work with. <laughs> Different than the Miller Band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, um, the only one that seemed to have any ideas of music at all was Brian Wilson. And he, and he taught the rest of them by rote. And Brian didn't read or write music, you know, so this is an entirely different world for me. Because he came over and he sang something and said, play this. I said, write it down, I'll play it. He says, write it down. I don't write down any music. You want it written down, you write it down. <laughs> okay, I wrote it down. <laughs> but, that became kind of a, a, a huge record. and. Explain what you were just telling me about the, about the usage now. Well, it's a union ruling where if you record something and you, you, you make a record of something, and then that record is used for something other than just a record, like if it's used for a commercial or it's used in a movie or anything like that, you have to be paid again because what you made it for was a record. So you have to be paid again. So I still get paid for good vibrations because they, they seem to use that for everything, you know, which is fine with me, you know. But I don't have the instrument anymore. Uh, I, I heard the um, synthesizer coming in, and I thought, oh, he can do so much more than I can do. So uh, I, I decided to, uh, to junk it. I, I, I gave it away to a hospital. And for the life of me, I can't, I can't remember what hospital. Uh, I think it was in Santa Monica that would make it St. John's probably. Um, but uh, they use it for uh, uh, testing people's uh, hearing because it went out of hearing both ways, the, the theremin did, in both high and low. But this was quite a while ago, and I've talked to the people in St. John's fairly recently, and they said, well, remember we had a tremendous earthquake, and they did. And they said almost anything like that would have been wiped out. And they said, at any, way, any rate, we would have replaced it with, with uh, updating it, the equipment. So uh, I don't think there is such a thing anymore as the, the one I use. When we were doing uh, uh, the song where it had the theremin, you know that, you know, on that real strange sound, uh, he actually had the gentleman that uh, invented it there, you know. And it was a big box, wooden box, uh, with a kind of a bronze or bronze or, or kind of a, you know circular thing that when you moved your hand, the tone would go high and then low. And he was trying uh, to uh, get, get play, learn the melody and play it and do it himself. And we said, man, 
you got the guy standing right here the inventor, let him do it, show him the melody, you know. So Brian said, oh, good idea, <laughs> you know. So he had uh, him come over and showed him the melody that he wanted, and, uh, and he just stood there and figured it out, and he was right there on the sessions playing live with us. And Brian would do, uh, we thought he was crazy, but he's a genius. You know, I mean, the guy knew what he wanted. He had to hear things first to see what he wanted to use on each song. So he told me to bring everything I owned, which was a lot of stuff. And he'd say, play that one, Jim. Let me hear that one. I'd play it. No, let me try that one. I'd play it. He said, yeah, yeah, use that one, and I'll come back and show you what I want you guys to do, you know? so. On, on those songs with the Beach Boys, Brian already knew what he wanted to hear. So when we picked up our horns, we didn't usually write very many things out. We learned uh, and just memorized all of our parts, you know. They're, they're called head arrangements when you just use your brains, you know. So uh, when you drive down the highway and you hear all those songs, you go, oh, wow, man. They, they would work on eight bars on one session, like 10 to 1 in the morning, then 2 to 5 in the afternoon, you'd work on the next eight bars, and then 6 to 9, you'd work on the other eight. And he put them all together, you know. And uh, it's just uh, the way he liked to work. He'd work on those eight bars because he knew what he wanted at that time, you know. So good vibrations, if you listen to it real careful, uh, they edited three sections and, and it kind of stops and that organ comes in playing real nice and quiet and then it goes in to the bang then it goes back into the up-tempo section. So there's three sections in that song that he put together, you know. And that, that was interesting watching a young genius at work and there we were with him, you know. That's really neat. I think the gentleman who was playing the theremin was Paul Tanner. Is that yeah, that's familiar? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to interview him. He actually lived pretty close to my house. Oh, got, okay. He also yeah. played trombone for Glenn Miller for many years. And, yeah, that's and, right. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the inventor was standing right there, you Is that know. Right? But <laughs> however, it happened so it's so far back, it's hard to remember all the guys' names. But it was right there, you know. And we couldn't figure out what is this weird box with the ring on the top, you know. And Number one record is what it was. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. And Sloop John B., what was that like? Was uh, that was another fun thing. That was Hal Blaine creating a drum part, and, uh, and then the rest of them kind of jumped in there. And then sometimes we would overdub our horn parts, or we would be there and we'd play them. But uh, every song had a different beat, different flavor, different lyrics. Now, the lyrics and the singing came later. Uh, the guys had to come in, learn their parts, and you know. But he he knew what to put down for the track, and uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of singing, uh, there, just on maybe a couple songs. But uh, he usually set it up first, and then they would sing later, you know. So once again, that was Jim Horn, and before him, Paul Tanner, talking about good vibrations and the theremin story. We finally get closure on that. <laughs> Moving forward, we're going to hear again from Fred Vale, wrapping up this podcast with the final segment. He's going to be talking a little bit more about pet sounds and some more about the theremin on good vibrations. I remember Brian called me. This was around 66. I was working for a company called Teenage Fair. I'd left the Beach Boys. They were getting bookings by everybody, and I was doing less and less shows with them. And 
I, uh, I went to a company called Teenage Fear that put on these youth expositions around the country. Started at the uh, Pacific Ocean Park in Santa Monica, moved into the Hollywood Palladium, was an annual event during Easter. Then they started putting them on in Cleveland and Houston and Denver and Miami and everywhere around the country. And I went to work for them. They were a great, great group of people. And um, I was uh, down in L.A. It was 66, and Brian uh, said, um, I wanted to talk to you, you know, haven't seen you in a while, can, you know, can we get together? And, and I, I said, sure, do you want me to drive up to, your, to you and Marilyn's house up in the hills? He said, no, I'm going to Capitol. He said, I will, I'll meet you in the basement of Capitol at the, at the mastering room down there. So um, I got there early, like I always do. Brian came in with a bunch of tapes under his arm. And again, he's in a white t-shirt and he's, you know, kind of tan dungarees. And uh, he goes into the mastering room, which is not a recording studio. It's where they master records where they have a lathe to, to make the parts and they have a little small board and um, it was a low ceiling, probably 10 feet maybe, acoustic tile like this. And it was a lot of light. I could tell Brian didn't care for the light, so he had the engineer turn all the lights off. And so there was only the uh, VU meters and the pilot lights on the console and there was a cutting light over the lathe so they could make sure it was tracking properly. And it was dark and there were no seats, so Brian and I sat down on a linoleum floor like this, and Brian's left shoulder was against my right shoulder, and they proceeded to, to master pet sounds. So other than the engineers and the band and the uh, wrecking crew musicians that played on pet sounds, I was most likely the first person in the world to hear Pet Sounds front to back, which Rolling Stone says is the number one American album of the rock era and second only to Sgt. Pepper. Is the, it's the number two album in the world in the history of rock and roll. Um, and, and that was an incredible rush for me. And I remember we get done mastering and Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows and Sloop John B, and Caroline No, and all these records would become future singles. And Brian asked me, well, what do you think? And I said, Brian, you know, it's a great album. I said, uh, wouldn't it be nice? It's going to be a single. Um, God only knows Carl just sang his heart. It's going to be a single. I said, Sloop, it's going to be a single. I said, it's great. And he said, no, not, not, I don't want to hear about the marketing. That'll take care of itself. He said, I want your thoughts on what do you think of the album? And I said, Brian, I think it's magical. I've heard instruments on that album that I've never heard on a rock and roll record. I said, you did a, an incredible job. I'm proud of you. It's great. And he said, man, I hope the guys think it's great. And now, as you will know, if you're a music buff, a music junkie like me, Capitol almost turned it down. Uh, they hedged their bet. They put it out. But they hedged their bet by putting out a Beach Boys Greatest Hits album to cover any potential losses they might take on the, on the Pet Sounds album. Mike didn't like it, Mike Love, because it didn't have the car songs and the, you know, the fun songs and the Girls on the Beach songs. And the, you know, it, it wasn't that kind of an album. It was a departure from that. I mean, basically, Brian had been influenced by Rubber Soul. And then, as it turned out, the Pet Sounds album would influence Sgt. Pepper. Uh, God Only Knows is Paul McCartney's favorite record, favorite song. It was John and Paul's favorite album. Uh, 
and it's you know, it's history. It's a great album, and I was there. And then uh, uh, just a, a few months later, I was at Columbia Records when, when they recorded Good Vibrations. So it's like, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. I really have. Do you um, remember if they um, used the theremin on that song? Well, that was on Good Vibrations, yeah. Yeah. Were you there when they used I was there. Actually, they did it in parts. That record, uh, we did two versions of it. I was there for part of one version. Um, it was recorded at several studios. Um, I was there during the, when they were doing vocals, doing, uh, you know, background harmonies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there for the Thurman part. But, yeah, it's part of that record. It's a famous part of that record. But, yeah, yeah, that was a, a great moment. That was Fred Vale, and uh, that concludes our podcast of the, uh, the for the Beach Boys on the Music History Project. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I just want to say a shout-out to all of those we interviewed, all those who helped with these interviews, and this great team, Ashley and Mike, thank you so much for all you guys do to make this a lot of fun. We're really happy about this, and we're looking forward to our next podcast in two weeks. I'll start with my final thought. You guys are an awesome team. Ashley? <laughs> yes, we are an awesome team. Yes, I'll agree with that. Um, but it was great listening to the, to the stories. And I mean, like I said before, Fred just has some fantastic stories. Um, great to kind of piece it all together and, and hear more personal. Um, st I mean, I definitely know the story of the Beach Boys pretty familiar with that but it was nice to get a couple little fun anecdotes that you know not everyone would would have heard about so that was pretty great i also agree that we're the best team um but for my final thoughts i'll just say i highly encourage everyone listening to head over to nam.org to check out some of the videos that accompany these interviews because they are just so cool just to kind of see them um especially like the posters and photos that fred shows off in his very cool stuff. And we heard a lot from him, but there is a lot more in that interview, too, to check out. So I would say definitely ju jump on the web and, and check it out. So thanks again for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.